I commended uh, first service because I said you guys must be the brunch crowd and, and you must be the, the lunch crowd in this. Um, but it's never too late for brunch if you want to do that. I always recommend it. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes today. As we've been for the last few months, we're uh, nearing the, hovering near the end, two or three, three more chapters after uh, this one. been walking through Solomon's wisdom. We're going to be in chapter 8, the entire chapter of 17 verses uh, this morning. So turn there in your bulletin right in the middle of the, of the Bible, if you have a Bible with you, or in your bulletin as well. We'll start in verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried, They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. At the end of uh, 2014, Slate Magazine, uh, they made history by naming something that had been around for a little while and and, uh, became kind of a phenomenon, which is outrage culture. Our collective sense of outrage online. And in fact, this is just funny to me, they called 2014 the year of outrage. They put uh, an article out and they put a 
you know, an interactive map, or not map, a calendar on their website. So it's 365 days, all color-coded the same way. You can click on any day of 2014 and see what the, um, the outrage was about online that day, what, what things had gone wrong, what people were upset about. And there are things that you click on. I did, I did a little work on it this week. I was like, what, what are people outraged about? I didn't remember hardly any of these things. And that was really the point of the articles to say, look, we can't be outraged about all of these things. It makes us numb towards what's, what we should really care about. That was the point of it. I just think it's kind of cute that that was 2014, you know, and, and the Atlantic uh, came out a few years later saying, good job, Slate, you named what we were all feeling, but we're saying now every year is the year of outrage, right? Because this is true pretty much since the internet was invented. The question is, how, how can we be expected to be outraged about 365 things, much less all of these years? What are we supposed to do with this? How can we solve all of these problems when everything seems so close and so important? And, um, you know, I saw uh, somebody say online one time that, you know, the, the warning sticker that's on the side mirror of your car that says objects in the, in the mirror are closer than they appear, that maybe we should put on all TVs and computers and smartphones, you know, things that are on the screen are more distant than they appear. Because everything seems so close and everything seems so important. And in fact, there are many, many important things to care about in the world. And we wonder, what is it that we're supposed to do about? And then we think, well, perhaps, I know we're all guilty of this. Maybe I can't do anything about it, but at least I can create awareness. I can share. I can retweet. I can make people more aware. And maybe someone else can do something. But as many people have written about, even in that 2014 Slate Magazine article, they said outrage can't be a stand-in for doing things, for activism. If we just focus on being upset, then it distracts from what we could do to bring real change. So deep down, we know that, and we feel captive. We feel enslaved by everything that's happening in the world. We feel lots of things. We feel anger at things that are happening that we think are outrageous. We feel guilt because sometimes we don't care as much as we think we should. And sometimes we do care, but we don't know what to do. And so we feel guilty and angry. We feel burdened. We feel enslaved. And Solomon's message to us this morning is, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. He's not saying, and I'm not saying this morning, that we shouldn't be properly burdened for things. We talk about the proper burdens of the Christian life all the time, that we should have compassion for those who are around us, that we should be righteously angry about many different things that come up. There is a place for all of those. But there is also a captivity that can come from acting like God in the world. To, to be enslaved to what we can do to bring about His purposes. And what Solomon writes to us today is that we can be joyfully human. We can remain creatures. We can recognize our limitations and actually find joy in them. He gives us a little poetic 
superscription over the passage. Many have wondered what this is doing here. It seems random at first, but I think it's actually an entrance into the rest of the chapter. What he says is, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Who has, who's like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Solomon's already answered many times, we can't find out the mind of God, but we can still live wisely. And when we do, two things happen. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. You have a shining face. It's possible. That's a picture of abundance and joy. It's the oil that anoints the face. The picture in the Psalms of the oil in the beard and on the face. There's a gladdening of the face, a brightening of the face. It's a picture of joy and happiness and a softening of the face. Or the way that I think about it here, an unclenching of the jaw. Right? Our faces are hard set against the world. Because all the brutal things we experience and all the things that we can be outraged about. But he says, look, a wise path will mean that you are at times happy and you are not stressed. You know, sometime, one time somebody asked me, it's, uh, at the time was a strange question to me, where are you carrying anxiety in your body? And I was like, I don't know how to answer that. They're like, just, just be still and just think about it. And I, I was still for a second, I was like, it's all in my jaws, right? I have this clenched jaw. And they're like, how long have you been experiencing that? I'm like, I don't know, years maybe? You know, my jaws are tight. But what we're invited to is a life of freedom. Not where we're free of any burdens, but we're free to not be God. Here's what I want us to see today. Life under God is freedom from the anxiety of control, and freedom to enjoy God's benefits. Freedom from anxiety of control, freedom to enjoy benefits. Using a couple of phrases there that have been around for a while, the distinction of two kinds of freedom. Freedom from and freedom to, which has been around for a long time in philosophical circles and theological circles. Not sure where it originated from. Maybe Immanuel Kant, but now many modern philosophers and theologians use this. Charles Taylor. Freedom from is, is a negative freedom. It's the freedom that comes when obstacles are removed, when interference is taken away. And freedom, too, is positive freedom. It's the, the freedom to be able to actually go and do something that you want to do to direct your positive outcome. And so if you think about slavery, for instance, that's a, that's a freedom from slavery. To be made free is to take away the, the negative freedom of bondage and freedom to then direct one's life however you want to. It's just an example. And what Solomon does here is he shows us a freedom from and a freedom to. This is a way of thinking, a freedom from a hardness of face and a freedom to having the abundance and the shining face of God. I think that sets us up for what he then describes, which is three freedoms that he has us look at. And these are longer points, but this is a complicated section. 
of Ecclesiastes, and I know that you can handle it. So a little bit more writing today if you're writing it down. But here's the first one, the first freedom. Freedom from authority we haven't been given means freedom to live in submissive peace. The first section here, Solomon addresses this idea of God-given authority, civic authority, civil authority of the king. Verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The things that Solomon is going to tell us this morning accord well with the rest of the scriptures about civic authority. First of all, that it is a divinely given thing. He says, because of God's oath to him, because of God's oath to the king. Another way that you could translate that phrase is because of your oath to God. So respect the king because you've taken an oath to God to respect the king, or that God has taken an oath to the king to give him that authority. Either way that we translate that, the point is that the authority of the civil magistrate is given by God. This is what the rest of the Scripture tells us. God has placed rulers on the throne. Not only their actual presence, but what they say and do. Verse 4, For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? This is his word. is also given by God. Actually, it says here, that whoever keeps a command, that is a command from the king, same word that is most often used of God, the commandments of God. Clearly, this is teaching us that we respect our authorities as if God has placed them over us. Our submission should be well-intentioned and genuine. He says, uh, be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't think I've got to get out of the, this presence of this king. He's driving me nuts. Like I, I would do a total better job. That's the idea. Stay in his presence. Try to understand. But in the midst of that, don't leave your own wisdom behind. Verse 5, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. That means, generally speaking, if you follow the civic authority, then your life will be better than if you don't. But... The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. You don't abandon your principles just in following someone. This is what the Scripture teaches about civic authority. It's something that we recognize is given by God. It's something that has limits. It's not something that we follow blindly. We exercise wisdom. And so the point is, whatever authority you have, recognize that it's God who's placed you in that authority. And whatever authority has been placed over you, recognize that that's what God has done for you. Now, though the payoff for this, what Solomon's developing, comes in verse 6 where he says, look, this is a solution to, what, to the trouble that we feel. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. There's things that you can't control. There's things that even a king can't control. What kinds of things? Verse 7, he does not know what it is to be, or what is to be, for who can tell how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, no, nor will the wickedness deliver those who are given to it. And I observed all this while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. 
Here's a list of the things you can't control. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't know the day of your death. You can't control what God is going to do. You can't end wars. You can't take care of wickedness. And all of this is done under the sun in a place where you can't control how people hurt each other. You don't know the inner workings of the world. And so, how are we to navigate a world where there's all this outrage and all these things that we can't do. Solomon says one thing is to trust the authority that God has placed over you. And there is a freedom in that. There's a freedom in saying, I don't know what's going to happen in the world, but I know that God is doing the, His will in placing those who are in authority. And I'm speaking to some, many of us who will be in positions of authority leaders at work, elders at this church. We are in positions of authority, but every single one of us is also in multiple positions of submission. We submit to those that God has placed over us. And so, we address what lies heavy on us by trusting what God is doing through the leaders that He gives us. There is a freedom in there. Enjoy the freedom. The second freedom is this. Freedom from the need to sort out the moral complexity of the world means freedom to have simple faith. Freedom from this anxiety for us to sort out the morality of the world means freedom to have a simple faith. And to get this wisdom, Solomon again goes to a funeral. Verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. He goes to this funeral, and it makes him ponder the moral complexity of the world. Something that we all wrestle with. The first complexity that he sees is that some people are outwardly righteous, but inwardly they're wicked. Then I went and saw the wicked buried. Solomon knows they're wicked, but then he says, they used to go in and out of the holy place. These are the wicked, but they are people that are worshiping in the holy place. It's a complexity. All of us wrestle with the, the outward look that we have and the inward reality of our own souls. And Solomon says, we live in a world where the, those two things don't always match. Second complexity. The wicked not only exist that way, sometimes outwardly righteous, but they can even be successful and popular in that religiosity. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. They're praised. Outwardly righteous, inwardly wicked, but popular. Third complexity. Justice doesn't seem to be on a quick timeline. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Solomon says, nothing happens when they act wickedly. Nothing happens with their fakeness. Nothing seems to ever happen. And so Solomon joins with David, his father, with this problem. Why do the, the righteous why did the wicked prosper? As David 
wrestles with in the Psalms. Nothing seems to be happening to them. It's real, this struggle. Why does God allow certain things to go on? Why are they doing so well? Why is there no judgment? Don't you know, God, that when nothing happens to them, then they think it's okay, and then they continue in it. They're convinced that they're getting away with it, and honestly, I'm beginning to wonder if they are. It's complex. Fourth complexity, one that we've spent all last week pretty much talking about. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is also vanity. The fourth complexity is that the righteous and the wicked don't always have immediately predictable guarantees. As we talked about last week, righteousness is not a guarantee of blessing. We don't unlock blessings from God by doing specific righteous acts that he then rewards with specific blessings. He's making the same point here. Sometimes the wicked, they they prosper and they're doing great. And so you see what Solomon sees. Do you feel the, the heartburn that he feels about this? As he goes to this funeral, this person who he knows to be unrighteous has had a good life, and they're dying presumably at a ripe old age, and everyone loves them. So why, the Scriptures wrestle with here and in many other places, have I been so righteous? Why do I continue to be faithful? Moral complexity. The need to sort out what God is doing in the world. What does Solomon do with this tension? You may think that the greatest mind, the Scripture tells us, that's ever lived would come up with an equally complex solution to the complex problem of the morality of the world. But he doesn't. He responds with simple, some may even say at naive at first glance, faith. Verse 12, Though the sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will He prolong His days like a shadow because He does not fear before God. I know, Solomon says, it will be well with those who fear God and it will not be well with those who do not fear Him in the end. This is an important point for us to understand about the nature of God's work in the world and His justice. The Bible does not promise poetic justice. It does promise final justice. Let me unpack that. Poetic justice. What we mean by that is this sense of like things being rewarded instantly. Things being right in the world. Things having a certain symmetry to them. The righteous get rewarded beautifully. The wicked get punished instantly. And we can see what's right and wrong and good and evil just by looking at the world simply. That's poetic justice. Sometimes we call it different things. We might call it instant karma. If you go on YouTube and type in instant karma, you'll find some great videos of people delighting in poetic justice, right? Somebody is rude to you in the car next to you, and immediately a policeman comes out and pulls them over. And you think, ha! You know, that's justice right there. That beautiful feeling. And as you pass by, you hope that they'll make 
eye contact with you, you know, so that they know that you know that, that they know, and that there's just this feeling of like, yes, the right thing happened. You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and immediately has a fender bender. You're like, well, that's what you get. Justice, instant karma. We love it. The Bible says sometimes we get it. The Proverbs tells about the, the wicked person who sets a trap and then falls in the trap that they themselves have set. It does happen. God does sometimes give poetic justice. In fact, we can pray for it. We can pray that the schemes of the wicked will be thwarted. And whatever is happening in the world, we should lean into that. We should pray that that kind of justice would happen. I'm saying that it's not promised. But we are promised final justice. And listen, this is what we really want. We think we want poetic justice, but think about this for a moment do you want poetic justice towards yourself? When we have acted apart from God, He has been patient with us. This is what the Scripture says. It seems like He's taking His time. It seems like what Solomon says here, that nothing's coming speedily. And everybody's continuing to do evil. But the Scripture says that He's not slow, as some count slowness, but He's patient, not wanting any to perish. This is the heart of God, that He waits in judgment, but it's also the point to say that it will come. Final justice does come. We believe in simple faith that God will sort out the moral complexity of the world. He will. He already has in His Son. The Scripture tells us what God does to sort out all of the complexity that's spread throughout the whole world because of sin is that He sent His Son to die for that sin, to be raised in newness of life, to have victory over the grave. And everyone who trusts in Him is righteous and is well in the end. What Solomon prays for, I know it will be well with the righteous. And those who have trusted in Christ are the righteous ones. This will happen. We believe it by faith, even though it's hard. Like Solomon, we live in a tension. It's a later tension. It's a later historical tension, but it's a real tension. We live in the already and not yet. Already Christ has come. Already what God has promised to happen has happened. The head of the serpent has been crushed under the heel of Jesus. That was the promise from Genesis 3.15. And so evil has been defeated, but it hasn't yet fully been taken care of. We live in the not yet. And so what is required of us is the same thing that's required of Solomon. It's a simple faith in the outcomes of God. That He is going to take care of all of the tension that we feel. But that we respond not with bringing that justice now, but that we respond with faith that He will. 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring the light to, light to things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is what the Scriptures teach. We wait in faith and righteousness of Christ until the end when we receive the commendation from God. And there is a freedom in that. 
in that we're in morally complex times for us to not give up and say it doesn't matter what you think or to say we shouldn't be compassionate on people or any number of things, but to say at the end we have a freedom from sorting out this complexity and we have a faith in the God who will. And He already has in His Son. We're waiting for that full arc to be finished. That full story to be told. Third freedom that we have is this. Freedom from comprehending God's business means freedom to enjoy what He's given. Solomon goes on territory here that he's already covered, but he doesn't quite think that we have yet. And I agree with him. Verse 16, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Solomon has made this point a number of times. You cannot know the mind of God. Each time that he goes on a search to see what God sees, he ends up running against his humanity. I can't see further than I see. And on top of that, it's exhausting to try. Night and day, I lose sleep in this search to know God's plan. But we can't get there. There's a freedom in that. There's not... It's not just the case that you need to be quiet and be a creature and things that you don't know. You can actually enjoy not knowing. Verse 15, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. I commend joy. Again, Solomon says, this is one of the main messages of Ecclesiastes. Over and over again, he says, pursue joy, eat, drink, enjoy the things that God has given you. And each time that he says that, as we have seen, he adds something else that adds to the picture, that shows us something. And here, what he adds is this, for this will go with him in toil, in his toil through the days of his life. The joy that Solomon describes here is a companion joy. That while you're in the world, while there's so many things you can't fix and you can't change and that you feel guilty about and you feel angry about, that alongside that, there should be a joy. Eat, drink, be joyful. God has given you things to enjoy. You can have a shining face. Even in the midst of a world where men are hurting men and when you don't understand the evil and and all kinds of complexities, you can still have a joy that goes with you because it's what God has given you. You have that freedom. I wonder if we can experience this freedom. I want to ask us, how are our jaws doing? Are they clenched up? We have anxiety in our lives. Do we believe the message that Solomon says that wisdom makes the face shine 
and hardness of the face can be changed because of what God has done. Solomon, who's gone through this search, says three things. I say, I know, and I commend. In my search, this is what I've discovered. I say you should listen to the king. Because you don't always have to have the burden of responsibility. It doesn't always fall to you. I know that those who fear God will be well. The righteous will be redeemed. And those who have trusted in Christ are the righteous ones. I commend joy as a companion for life. So loosen up and enjoy what God has given. I want to remind us this morning, the world is not on your shoulders. It doesn't mean that we aren't properly burdened for one another. We share in each other's burdens. The Scripture teaches us to do that. There are things that we can carry for one another. There are compassion things that we need to engage in. There is righteous anger sometimes. But over it all, the world is not on your shoulders. There's a subtle change that happens when we start taking on burdens where we become like God or we try to be. And it leads to a sense of captivity and enslavement. But the world isn't fixed through our engagement. The world is fixed through what God is doing. He uses us from time to time in His purposes for His glory. But we don't, through being burdened ourselves, actually fix the world. What, Christ, what God has done already in Christ has given us this freedom. He has already secured for us a world that is morally fixed. And the world in His Son, with what He has done, He has already fixed the world. We have not yet seen it come to completion, but He is moving. He is working. What He has called us to is a faith in what He is doing. An openness to see how He has already secured the joy and the freedom that we long to have. Let's pray.